Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on exploring and unearthing the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. If you stop and think of where we're at as a dominant living organism, it really is quite mind-blowing. In our existence, we have managed to proliferate and achieve some pretty fantastical feats relating to technology, medicine, sciences, and so on. And part of that has been our innate understanding that we are a species which builds off the back of one another. Our social togetherness and collaboration literally fuels much of our achievement. As such, we've found ways to ensure these key ingredients remain strong in order to allow for the constant flourishing of new ideas and innovation. Look no further than how we design our communities, cities, and countries. We have housing aimed at nurturing and providing for our social needs. Business hubs and districts allow for commerce and progress to be driven forward on a daily basis. All of this takes place through this never-ending global push for Kaizen, or continuous improvement. Nowadays, the tools we have to advance this agenda are tremendous. Think big data. Think institutions like MIT, where some of the brightest minds converge to help map out visions aimed at further advancing our species while attempting to offset or handle many of the challenges we collectively face. If all of this sounds as fascinating to you as it does to me, you're in luck. My guest today is one of the most astute and knowledgeable professionals out there when it comes to technology and urban planning. Sarah Williams is an Associate Professor of Technology and Urban Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where she is also Director of the Civic Data Design Lab and the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism. Williams combines her training in computation and design to create communication strategies that expose urban policy issues to broad audiences and create civic change. She calls the process Data Action which is also the name of her recent book published by MIT Press. Williams is also the co-founder and developer of Envelope City, a web-based software product that visualizes and allows users to modify zoning in New York City. Before coming to MIT, Williams was co-director of the Spatial Information Design Lab at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture Planning and Preservation, GSAB. Her design work has been widely exhibited, including work in the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, Venice Biennale, and the Cooper Hewitt Museum. Williams has won numerous awards, including being named one of the top 25 technology planners and game changers by Metropolis Magazine. Now, considering all of this, I'd like to say what an honor it is to have you on the program. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, to be honest, I've had this, you know, on my calendar for a while. I mean, there's so much that you do and there's so many questions that I have. And I think listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. So why don't we get right into it? The first segment I have here is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And basically, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does. Now, I'd like to do it for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everyone up to speed on the actual job itself. And then two, I think it offers a nice jumping off point for the guest to kind of explore the definition. I mean, sometimes there's things that are within the definition that are underrepresented, but other times too, there's things that just, you know, I think we could explore further. But unfortunately, I do have a bit of bad news. Wikipedia is letting us down somewhat here, doesn't have a definition of a profession that encapsulates all that you do. So what I did is I created a bit of workaround here. I have two definitions I'm going to go with. Uh, one is urban planning and one is big data. I will say as well, I do fully acknowledge and understand that you are a professor. I'm not going to throw that in there just because I think it would take a bit of time, I think, to, to unpack all of that. So let's focus on these other two. So without further ado, let me read off urban planning for you and then uh, big data and we can go from there. All right, here we go. Urban planning. The responsibilities of an urban planner vary between jurisdictions and sometimes within jurisdictions. The following is therefore a general description of the responsibilities of an urban planner, of which an urban planner may well typically practice two or more of. 
An urban planner may also specialize in one responsibility only, land use planning, strategic urban planning, heritage and conservation, urban revitalization, master planning, transportation planning, economic development, environmental planning, urban design, infrastructure planning. Okay, big data, next definition. The term big data tends to refer to the use of predictive analytics, user behavior analytics, or certain other advanced data analytic methods that extract value from big data. All right, there it is, Sarah. I know some of the definitions are a little bit basic here, but within the context of what you do at MIT, what do these definitions mean to you? Well, um, one thing I was thinking is, well, you know, urban planning is such a broad field. So I, th I thought it was interesting how many things were listed there. Right. And then I think urban planners might list even more, but I think at the heart of what urban planners do is they're really translators between um, different fields, organizations. I, I always like to call them, you know, kind of intermediary translators between two professions, right? You know, for example, you know, if you're trying to develop criminal justice policy and apply it to urban development, planners help translate those ideas or they translate and communicate to communities the ideas of the government or they help translate the ideas of the community back up to the government, right? Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in order to do anything in the urban realm, it takes so many diverse and different stakeholders. And I think at the heart of what urban planning does is try to bring those stakeholders together in order to really improve our cities. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting take and one that I wasn't truthfully expecting, but it yeah, completely makes either. sense. No, no, it's really <laughs> insightful. And I really like that. As far as big data, that definition, that one was really quite simple, I think, but. Yeah, I mean, Big data analytics is interesting because um, it's really defined by their current time, right? Like what was big data to us today is very different from what big data was 10 years ago. And yeah. it all has to do with what they call like the three V's, veracity, velocity, variety, um, of information, but big data encapsulates so many other things. I think oftentimes people associate it with machine learning or augmented reality or the kinds of an analytics that we apply towards big data. I think in the context of what I do, I'm very much doing big data analytics, but I also do a lot of data ethics and ethics around using big data. And that's one of the things I teach at MIT. So, um, and that gets back to my translator role. I really try to translate the analytics of big data to communities, to society, to policy analysts. So that's where I feel like my planning intersection comes is I try to kind of take the insights that we can get from data analytics and use them to help society. Okay, so basically, in essence, you're kind of like making sense out of what the numbers are telling people and putting it in simpler terms where people can, you know, break it down for themselves to make those types of policy decisions or for government, so on and so forth. Exactly. And being the translator. Um, so if the data tells us, you know, I mean, I have a project where I use data to find vacant cities in China, and we can then use that to create policy or analyze risk. but you know, communicate that, how that, all of those numbers added up to that. Mm, that's absolutely fascinating. I must say as well, like I'd imagine, I have no idea, but I'm, I'm just guessing here that change within like big data, it must be exponential at this point. I mean, like year on year where, you know, technology is allowing for the gathering of so much more. Is, is that, would that be accurate? Exactly accurate. Yeah. And the algorithms are constantly developing right. and constantly changing, and which is, makes it so exciting. Uh, new programming languages coming out, new ways to visualize it, yeah. and um, new problems that come up. I remember I actually I started my profession as a geographer and I did a lot of analytics on satellite imagery. And when I started, satellite imagery was considered big data. And that was like a 15 meter by 15 meter pixel we had of the ground. 
then we tried to estimate what was that is now we have a half a centimeter pixel um, and the problem is different right because before we had to figure out okay it's taking a 15 meter by 15 meter mix reflectance like that's urban and forest and yards like now we have like too many individual pixels showing us grass. <laughs> so how do we, we need different algorithms to deal with that. So it's, it's fun. It's constantly changing. Yeah. 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 It keeps it fresh. I would imagine that's for sure. And new problems and new ethical problems, like, you know, bias in the data, big data, and most of big data analysis, when people think about it, they think about Twitter, they think about Facebook, um, they think about kind of all the data that advertising agencies and their heavily biased information. And so how to deal with all of this bias is something that I'm interested in and the privacy aspects of it as well, um, which all gets into my data ethics class. How do we make sure that we do not use big data inappropriately or cause any harm with it is something yeah. that I try to advocate for with my students. Yeah, yeah. I had a similar discussion. I had a guest on earlier in the year. He's a GIS analyst, and we're, you know, lightly talking about this topic. And I just found it absolutely compelling. I mean, the technology is advancing at such a rate, you know, whereas like the the ethics and how do we manage this is just trying to keep up, at least it's what it seems like from the outside looking in. So I'd imagine there there must be those moments in time where you're like, ooh, this data, I don't know, it's it's bordering or it's way over the line. You know, what are we going to do about it? You know, how do we inform the people that make the decisions on how to manage this. I mean, that, that must be a bit of a challenge at times uh, to see that unfolding right before your eyes. Yeah. In fact, like in my book, I have seven principles of using data for action. And the last principle is creating your own ethical standards of practice because technology advances way further than we can create our ethics or create regulation bodies. So it's up to us to create those standards of practice. And help promote them as we do our analytics. There it is. Excellent. <laughs> all right. I have one more question really quickly in this segment here. I mean, with yeah. all the different things I listed off that you're involved with right now, I mean, what normally I ask here, like, what is a typical day like for, for an individual, but maybe I should change this to a week or a month, perhaps. I mean, does even such a thing exist for you with so many things on the go? Yeah. I mean, I guess I mean, in a way, there are some things that are typical, right, that I um, teach in classes. So those are kind of regular patterns, but we usually have multiple research projects going on in the lab. And so typically I'm either in class or working with each one of those research groups um, progressing that research um, and then there's work that I do for the university, you know, advocating for undergraduates or advising, but I would say a big portion of my time is working uh, with my research groups on the various projects. And so I usually create teams for each project that we have in the lab. And one of the things that I really believe is important in data analytics for society is having really diverse teams. So they have people who specialize in a particular policy, uh, data analysts or data scientists, a data visualizer. Uh, somebody who specializes in statistics, somebody who specializes in design. And so uh, usually we have team meetings and then I'll have individual meetings as well. Okay. Well, I imagine we keep everything fresh in terms of that, you know, with so much going on, uh, you know, meeting with different types of individuals constantly, whether it be students or people within these teams, you know, you're constantly being exposed to different ideas and perspectives. And that must be a, a rewarding aspect to, to all that you do, I, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, being at MIT is like, I mean, I can't imagine being anywhere else. Like, I mean, the exciting research and people that you bump into every day is just incredible. And I mean, and my students who are absolutely brilliant um, and I enjoy working with them. I mean, I loved teaching at Columbia, also amazing faculty, but I think, you know, because I do technology and urban planning, it just, when I came here, just, you know, broadened all of the horizons yeah. and it allows yeah. you to think of new ways that you might apply your skills that you might not have mm. done before. Well, you're right on the edge. You're right on the edge of everything, I would say, probably at MIT, just with obviously like the name says it all essentially and right and the, the talent as you uh, just referenced. 
Uh, that, that must be. Yeah, I mean, but I'm, yeah, MIT also has this new college of computing, which is a recognition that computing should be interdisciplinary. And so the, the whole school is based on kind of interdisciplinary education with computer science. And I'm super excited to be part of the core curriculum for that degree because I, you know, I teach a data visualization class, uh, which really communicates the outputs of uh, data, but we also use programming languages for it. So it's one of the core courses. And I just think it's so exciting to be an urban planner who's also teaching in a core course in computer science. And that's what I love about MIT is that kind of experimental nature. Let's hope it. Yeah. Let's hope it's a success. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really exciting. I mean, it makes perfect sense, obviously, to, to be marrying those sort of areas together in essence, right? I mean, it's, it's where things are going and it, it seems kind of silly in a sense that it, it is like this most institutions at the moment. So yeah, no, that sounds really think, uh, encouraging. You know, like at the heart of it, as educators, we should be training the next professionals and they go out into the world and take as their core these skills. So I really believe planners should be able to communicate with maps and data and that it should just be a kind of a thing that they know how to do just when you get out of school and you hire a player. But the way that you get that in there is to train more planners so that when they get out into an urban planning department or consultancy, they're kind of teaching up and bringing in those new skills and say, okay, programming, and technology can be part of advancing the field mm. of planning. Gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that, Sarah. I do want to skip on over into a new segment, actually, a Q&A discovery. And the first question I have, actually, in this segment is one that often comes up with a lot of guests, and for good reason. You know, I get a lot of comments, requests from listeners who want to know the backstory, sort of the origin, you know, of, of how these guests ended up, you know, where they're at right now. And maybe we could begin there with, with yourself. Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I started as a geographer. I was always interested in how space played a role in society or like, what about your geographic location? And I started, I did a lot of remote sensing, satellite data also when I did that, but I was always really interested in design and interested in being a designer. So I was, I was working as a computer programmer, you know, in a, a satellite imagery company. And then I, I decided to go to architecture school <laughs> and like <laughs> totally like, just a just little like, bit off. <laughs> like, it felt like, it felt like I was veering off course, especially like, you know, architects make probably $40,000 a year where like a computer programmer makes a lot more often was questioning my uh, role in that, but um, then I went through architecture school and I, and when I came back, I worked as a landscape architect in the city of Philadelphia. And what I did is actually help them create green infrastructure. Um, and I did a lot of like prototypes of like green roofs on buildings. And this is like very early days of this kind of work. And I realized like what I was actually doing was urban planning because I was like changing zoning codes and I was negotiating with these old uh, kind of city bureaucrats and like changing all kinds of things. And I just absolutely loved it and loved that I felt like I could really have an impact on society and impact on civics. And mm. it just was really empowering. So I went to school to, for planning and architect and planning are very uh, similar. I probably didn't have to go to planning school, but I think that's where I kind of mashed up my two skills, right? I had these significant data analytics skills. And then I had now cultivated some serious design skills. And then I realized that not many people have those two things. And that if I could mash them up, I could really help communicate some of the really important policy issues to society. So it's funny how like, as you're on the path, sometimes you're wondering like, what What's what am I Where's doing? this going? Where did, did, am I going? on the right path? Yeah. <laughs> and now that I look back on it, I'm like, this makes so much sense, right? Yeah. Like that. Um, you know, I really enjoyed architecture and the design field, and I really enjoyed doing the data analysis. And I was able to create a career for myself by mashing those two things up. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. And almost maybe in, in a sense, perhaps even trailblazed in a new path where others are going to follow even now that the I value is so. kind of being assigned to. I hope so. But I mean, I think also my, you know, my parents are journalists and I had always, I think in the heart of, I was really interested in civics and civics duty and like, how do we contribute to society? Like you might, my parents did that through like journalism I mean, I think that I wanted to be a journalist probably, but my parents were like, don't do that. It's a dying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I found my kind of own journalist calling by doing these data visualizations, which I hope expose policy and issues in the same way. Kind of in a, and so much of it is in a journalistic style. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, I think that's probably a really nice segue into my next question here. Your work at the Civic Design Data Lab, first off, is absolutely fascinating. And in visiting the website, researching for this talk, of course, I came across like the chief principle of what this organization stands for and believes in. And it's very, very clear from the website. And I just want to read this off for listeners right now. It says, big data will not change the world unless it is collected and synthesized into tools that have a public benefit. Now, before I ask for comments from you, I'd like to read off a few article headlines from this website as well. One is called Ghost Cities, another is Digital Matadus, and another is Central American Migration. So within the context of what we've just maybe speaking about and also what Civic Design Data Lab stands for, maybe you could further elucidate, you know, what the organization is all about. Yeah, I mean, so at the heart of what we try to do at the Civic Data Design Lab is really use data and data analytics to create policy change um, and or civic change. And I, one of the main ways that we do that is through communicating complex data analytics, but really exposing policy issues in, in new ways and new dimensions so that people are able to understand and interpret them. Like many of the projects in the lab have that at focus. And I think through the work, I really come up with this idea of calling it data action, which is what my book is called. And it's, I think, a methodology that I hope others can follow when they want to also use data for a public good. And I think really it starts with these teams, building teams to work with data. So if you're going to answer complex problems in the urban environment, build teams to do that. So let's like take the digital Matatus headline that you uh, ran off that, that project. What it did is actually map the informal transit system in Nairobi, Kenya, and believe it or not, like it's the main form of public transport, but there was no maps or data about where it went. And we started with a team of computer scientists from the University of Nairobi, policy experts in transportation, a political scientist, myself, and, you know, collected the data using an app that we developed, but then also made a map, a physical map of that. The, it was the first informal transit system searchable in Google. But I think like what was important about that project is that by building teams, we were able to create a greater impact. The government, we involved them and then they trusted the data. Um, we had local transport community who held hackathons to teach the local technology community how to use the, the data set. And now there's five uh, apps that like uh, very popular apps in Nairobi that use that data as the back end. We, you know, our political scientist was able to connect it to people doing resource on transport, and now the data has been used to do analytics. So not just, you know, doing that one-off analytic, but really part of what our projects do is trying to kind of get it out there in the field and kind of think about all the multiple ways that you can use it for change. But Data for Action is about building these teams, is about collecting original, unique data. It's about quantifying it uniquely. It's about ground truthing it and then really visualizing it and opening up for anyone to see through these data visualization and then kind of creating a loop or an edit project where we can, you know, make sure we edit the analysis that we work on. Wow. That's absolutely fascinating. You're, you're essentially changing ecosystems, really, right? I mean, you're touching on so many different points there, like infrastructure, you know, 
social aspects as well. I mean, this impacts people's lives, of course, and and how they how they live. Uh, that, that must be really well. One, as I said, you know, fascinating. I mean, but the really, digital matatus was uh, so great because we, they actually printed the map in the newspaper. Um, but the majority of cities in the world have this kind of informal transit system. So after we did Nairobi, we really inspired cities all over the world, and we now help forty different cities from. Amman to Managua to we just did Dominican Republic, but the idea is not for us to do it, but for uh, what we try to do is have people teach each other and just make those connections. So yeah, that empower you know the people within those countries or cities themselves to to be able to leverage it and use it in the best way possible, right? Yep. Wow, really interesting, and I think it perfectly sort of encapsulates everything you know what Civic Design Data Lab would seemingly be all about. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of what Data for Action, the book, you know, which represents kind of the methodology we created in the lab, what we're trying to do is provide a guide for people who do want to use data for a public good. I mean, I work with so many data analysts that are interested in using data towards the betterment of society. And how can we do that, like, ethically and responsibly um, and I think, like, I hope the, the methodology that we lay out in the book creates a way for people to do that. But I, you know, through this building teams, collecting data ingenuously, and, but ground truthing and asking people in the data set whether it rings true to them, um, some of the analytics. And this goes back to, you know, many urban planners are very uh, worrisome of data because of the ways that had been really used inappropriately in the past. And so just being an urban planner that's interested in data, not so much anymore, but was an oddity because of some of the really problematic ways that we use data to marginalize populations and the homeowner's mm. loan insurance map are, are a great example of that. And so one of the things that I try to do in the book is say, yes, actually you can do a lot of harm and pay attention, but these are the ways that you can think about it ethically yeah. and responsibly. Mm, mm. And really interesting stuff there. Yeah. Well, I'd certainly encourage everyone to, to go check out that website and read up a, a few more of those articles. I mean, again, in researching for this talk, I just found myself totally engrossed with it and, and going from article to article, really, really fascinating. Um, I do want to move on though, Sarah, to another question here. Now, as far as your role, director level role for the MIT Norman V. Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism, for listeners who don't know, Center has become the world's preeminent cultural center about design of metropolitan environments. So there's a lot of discussion and discourse surrounding ideas of architecture, urban planning, landscape architecture, and systems thinking. And also, when I researched, I did find that uh, there's a distinct focus on examining how research and design can really uh, help offset some of the challenges that we face in the future, you know, as a result of probably some of this radical environmental change that is forecasted. And I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that in terms of the future, in terms of trying to offset many of the problems that we are probably, many cities around the world are going to be faced with as far as uh, environmental change. Yeah. Well, the Leventhal Center at the, like the heart of it, you know, we have 40 affiliated faculty and at the heart of the thinking of this center is it's an, an interdisciplinary approach, which will help, you know, produce those changes that we want to see in cities. And the Leventhal Center has currently two major themes that we're focusing on. One is equitable resilience, which is really thinking about cities and climate change and how do we plan for the futures of cities. Obviously, climate change is real and many of the communities it will affect are on the margins. And how do we make sure the planning that we do for climate change is equitable? The huge focus of um, our research center. And, you know, we have people who do data analysts, but we also have a lot of people who are thinking about community impact, community engagement, and how do we make sure get information from the stakeholders. But also we have designers who are thinking about really future thinking designs. If we plan with climate change as a kind of baseline, what does the design of the city look like? And how do we both, uh, let's say, mitigate and adapt mm. um, 
and adaption is is a big area of focus. Like, how are we going to adapt our current buildings, parks, municipal structures, everything? So that's a big focus. And would you then- would you be able to even just kind of even provide a bit of an example? You know, I know like for for one, when I think at least for me, like the first thing that pops into my mind is like the rising sea levels, and then like how many cities are you know quite vulnerable to that. I mean, how would that problem be? I don't know, examined perhaps you know within the context of this conversation. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so one project that that I actually worked on too was retreat. So if the water levels are rising, how do we plan, how can cities or governments plan to actually buy out housing? And then where did those people who get bought out, where are they allocated new housing potentially mm-hmm. in the town? So we we worked with the Regional Plan Association in New York City to look at all of the coastal areas in and along Long Island. And there are actually like, you know, numerous ones yeah. um, that are going to be affected by climate change. And New York State does have a buyout program. And what we did with these towns is actually think about, well, how can you make this buyout program effective by densifying maybe the town centers in and around the, the railroad station, bringing people in? But then actually allowing those old areas where the houses might be uh, to be parks or um, mm. kind of public assets that can be used by those people who move. But obviously a very controversial yeah. kind of look yeah. at, at adaptation. But there's other examples where, you know, you think about raising the housing. I do think that a bit of buyout is important. And I think we're all going to have to think about that. Was that yeah, buyout, yeah. sorry, I was Go just going to ask, was that buyout program that you just referenced, was, is that a program that's like generally been there to sort of like cover a number of issues or is that a program that's been developed through, you know, consultation, through, you know, this, this attachment to, to these problems that we're facing environmentally speaking? I mean, I think a lot of, the buyout programs in New York and New Jersey, in any case, really came out of Sandy. I think they, okay. I think the planning for them had existed previous, and and they were considering them. And then after Sandy, they became like a more formalized policies. I, I think one one thing though that hasn't been done, and a lot of these buyout programs is. They don't get heavily promoted. Um, there's not a lot of advertising. And then there's a, not a lot of strategy like in the towns themselves of like how they could make sure then those community members can stay in the town. So one of the things that we were doing is like helping communities like take this state developed program and think about how to make the impact to their community the best. But what was interesting is like we also did an uh, an analysis between New York and New Jersey between the way the buyout programs work. In New Jersey, they ask that you know uh, several properties that are next to each other do it together, or else they okay. won't they won't get the buyout. And in New York, you can just have somebody buy out, but then the rest they call it the missing tooth kind of problem. So maybe one or two people buy out, but then you still have mm-hmm. the problem of people, the infrastructure still existing in that area, because it's also, it's the expense of having like sewer systems, electricity uh, systems going right. in a, a community that's constantly being flooded. So like the buyout programs are also to help deal with like kind of keeping that infrastructure when it's not very viable anymore. But we are also centers also thinking about a new theme which is called digital urbanism and what we're really trying to do is rethink this idea we hear smart cities all the time I don't want to call it smart cities I want to think about the ways that we can integrate technology into urbanism that's less like corporate and commercial and more works with the equity of communities Um, and we're doing a dinner every Friday night so we had one last Friday, which was science fiction urbanism. Like, what do mm. we have to learn from science fiction and thinking about urban planning and urban design? 
And then this week we're calling it Unsmarting the City. Really what we want to do is come up with a new name for smart. I hate the word smart cities. It has kind of all kinds of connotations with it. So yeah, can we come up with a better name for that? That's equity driven, impact driven, talks about how technology can improve society, but isn't, let's say techno um, solutionism. Like I I, I hate techno solutionisms. I want to think about the integration of technology. So we're talking about that. Um, And then we have three other dinners, which are coming up, which are fun in that area. Okay. Exciting. Exciting. Part of what the center does is try to start these conversations and debates that we hope will then get into the agenda of mainstream plannings. All right. Excellent. Well, let's shift on over to another question here. And it's something, you know, equally impressive to everything that you have been doing. And I'd like to uh, to dive into your work with Envelope City. I mean, this is a business that you co-founded. And I understand that uh, your business alongside Shop, one of the world's most innovative architectural firms, performed this Herculean-like task of modeling this wildly complex 4,300-page New York City zoning resolution into 3D. Now, before I researched this, just that statement alone like had me. It was quite fascinating unto itself. But maybe just for listeners as well, like what what does all of that mean in terms of application? Like how is that that being used, that model essentially? Um so what I mean, one of the biggest ways people use it is if you're a developer in New York City and you're thinking about buying a property, you want to see like what you can build as of right. New York's zoning is very prescriptive. It you know, other towns and communities have like kind of looser zoning codes. So you have to go through like a process. You might be able to build a 10 story building or foot, but in New York, it's very prescriptive, but it changes like block to block, street to street based on like how far you are away from something, how far away from a park, how far away from your historic district. So it's quite complicated. And usually in New York City, before envelope, you'd have to hire like uh, land use lawyer to like help you figure out what you build out of right. Right. So envelope is kind of what you can build. Your building envelope can be, but the back of the envelope uh, kind of calculation to see what what you can mass out and what kind of square footage you can get. But once we put all this data into a database, what you can actually use it for is also to search for properties because. You, now you know under where underdeveloped properties are because we know what you can build as of right, and then we know what is actually built. So I think probably people use it more for that property search mm. than they do for the as of right zone. I don't know, maybe it's equal. And just visually as well, like from when I was researching, I found like just visually being able to see different things as well kind of gives you a different perspective or a different understanding. And uh, yeah, I, I can absolutely. see obviously where it fits in with everything that you've done, all of the other projects, but it was really quite interesting to, you know, as I just said, you know, visually see some of these properties or, or places. Yeah, I mean, themselves. that's true because the zoning code is this like text, like written yeah. text, like it's crazy because it's spatial right? and it's like all this written text, which then a land use attorney usually works with the architect to then like create the massing model yeah. for yeah. these de- real estate developers. So our project does that not only does it like translate and tell you what you can build but then builds it for you and then you can change the parameters you can say well I want you know 11 foot uh, ceilings instead of eight but I it won't take any of my FAR off so I might as well do that Mm, yeah really really interesting okay another question here for you Uh, I did mention this in the bio that your work your design work has been widely exhibited in the Guggenheim Museum of Modern Art, uh, Venice Biennale, and Cooper Hewitt Museum. Now, for the listeners that aren't really sure of how art and design connect to data, perhaps you could fill people in a little bit on that. I mean, one of the things that I try to do is really communicate policy issues through data. Um, and I try to do it in a way that captures people's attention and allows for a different dialogue or debate around a topic than would usually happen. So, you know, art allows us to get outside of normal modes of thinking and to begin conversations. And so I think that's one of the reasons that using design has been important for the way that I communicate my work. And I'll just give you an example, like the 
project that's in the Museum of Modern Art. Um, this project, what we did is we took data from the criminal justice system of where people lived before they went to prison. And then we plotted those addresses on a map. And then we added up block by block how much money it costs to incarcerate people in those blocks. And then we found many blocks where it costs over a million dollars to incarcerate people. And in those same blocks, we don't spend any money on education, job training programs, reentry programs. Some of the, we spend no money on the systematic reasons that many of these people are going to prison in the first place. Instead, we spend it on incarceration. So that's what those maps were for. But we made those maps in this bright red color, um, black, very dramatic, serious. Then we had like a red line from every prisoner to which prison they went to like on the map. And then, you know, the use of the million dollar block, like the idea of a block, spending a million dollars in a block is just kind of helps people conceptualize the total cost in a way. We all know we spend a lot of money on the criminal justice system, but like, you know, if you get it down to like, oh, my block or that block is a million dollars kind of helps create the dialogue of it. But it's also this idea that that map, then anybody can use it for anything they want. You know, like the idea that an image or design or art allows us to make our own arguments or find ourselves within those arguments. So those maps that they were made almost 15 years ago, I saw them all through defund the police. People were using them in their presentations, trying to explain that. And so I think for me, the power of design or using art in data is this ability to both communicate the insights of data, but then allow others to use it. It's hard for them to maybe make a chart or visual with data analysis, but they can take on images. Mm. And it kind of returns, you know, to how we open things up, you know, and you're, you're speaking of like what you do is basically translating a lot of data and putting it into simpler terms where people can begin to like contemplate or reflect on it, think about it, which then of course can lead to action of some sort. And I guess the way you just described it there, you know, through, through art, essentially, you know, just the intrinsic nature of what you're doing when you are looking at art is you are deeply you know, oftentimes deeply thinking about it and what it means and, and, and thinking, you know, on, on so many different levels. And uh, I can certainly see that connection there. One of the quick follow-up um, in regards to this, was this something that you had spearheaded? Like you'd introduced maybe this, this concept that maybe it might be worth exhibiting or were you approached by some of these uh, institutions? So for that project, it started with us. We actually like proposed an exhibition at the Architecture League in New York City. We had an exhibition, not just of New York City, but like 10 different cities. And then Paolo Antonelli from MoMA saw the maps in that Architecture League exhibit. And then she was putting together an exhibit called Design and the Elastic Mind, which was like, how does design change our frame of mind? on certain issues in the world. And so she asked us to participate in that exhibition, like ask those maps. So right. um, what, it's kind of both. We put out an exhibit and then somebody saw our exhibit and then put it in the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd imagine as well. Like, larger. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, imagine, you know, once that ball gets rolling, essentially, you know, you'd probably get approached by several different uh, institutions that once they see the value of something like that and just how unique it is really, you know, and, and bringing all these different elements together. Yeah, again, really quite fascinating. Okay. Well, I do have one last question here. And to this point, we've been squarely focused on a lot of the professional side of things, but I would like to kind of segue into a bit of the personal side here. You know, for all that you're involved with, I mean, what what is it that professionally drives you? So, I mean, you'd mentioned a little bit about your, your parents, you know, for one, uh, being journalists and that sort of uh, that connection there to the civic side of things, but maybe you could uh, take that further a little bit. I mean, I definitely think at the heart of everything I do is I want to use my superpowers for good, uh, right? <laughs> and so my superpowers are data analytics and design. And I'm constantly driven about how I can take those skills that I have to improve society. 
it definitely comes from my interest in civics from my parents and so forth but I do think at the heart um I've always been concerned about people on the margins um like how can we take you know something like technology which is like people are making money off of and corporations are making money off of us how can we really like flip it on its head yeah. and use it to help people. And that's what I'm constantly trying to think about. Let's flip this technology over and use it to improve society rather to, I mean, making money is good. We all like thinking about like, of course, yeah, <laughs> there's more to it though. Right. I mean, there is yeah, more, to it, more all. to it. There should be at least. I mean, and that's one of the things that I've been really interested in lately is, you know, if you think about all of this advertising data, you know, like advertisers know everything about us, like yeah. everything, like you talked about something and now you're getting a pop-up of it. Like they really have a ton of information. And I've been talking with my friends, you know, in the big data world of advertising, and I'm basically saying, you guys, do you know what good you could do with this data? <laughs> like, yeah. like, think about how, like, can we like really leverage this, this advertising yeah. data on its head and do something good with it? So that's my next big project. Like, I really want um, to try to take some of this corporate data and access it ethically and responsibly. Like, I mean, we need to be responsible, but use it for good. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag tech for good, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I mean, even just like you know, myself, I mean, going through, I mean, you come across in social media all these different advancements and, and every day it's something new, right? But yeah, you know, what stands out for me, at least personally at times, is finding finding these projects or finding these things that are going on that like again comes back to to technology being leveraged in a way that's gonna positively impact society. And and those are the ones, at least for me personally now, are starting to stand out that much more. I mean, the other ones are are great for wow factors and everything else, but when you can see how the application of some of this technology can really affect lives in, in a positive manner. Yeah, that's where the, the the true excitement should be, I think. And at least it seems like people like yourself, you know, are pushing that agenda forward and uh, and hopefully getting it out to more people to to become a little bit better informed and uh, to start to demand. I mean, we should all something. use our superpowers. To yeah. The yeah. Our society. Oh, that's the ideal world. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, most definitely. <laughs> Really quickly before we move on, maybe somebody what we both know of, uh, Rosella Botone. I think that was our mutual yes. connection here. Yeah, you worked with her maybe on that central migration she definitely project. definitely works on her superpowers for She good. sure does. <laughs> she sure does. And when I had her on the, the show earlier in the year, I'd said during the recording, even afterwards as well, the thing that just really stood out to me with her is like, I just got this imagery of this, like this big heart, you know, like somebody <laughs> who like genuinely, genuinely cares. And and that's what we need. And it, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, we're having this type of conversation right now, because in a different kind of way, I'm kind of getting that same sort of vibe, that same sort of feeling, you know, like, obviously, you're incredibly talented in what you do. And you could be probably, I'm sure, you know, you're doing quite well. Professionally like a lot speaking, more obviously. money. I could be like in Facebook now. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. But here you are, you know, you know, like, you're really creating a lot of positive change. And, and that's inspiring, I think, to a lot of people. And that's, that's what we need. Obviously, that's what we need. We need more of this. So. Yeah, I just want to throw that in there before we jump into this next segment, which, yeah, I think is a pretty exciting one. We have a water cooler story segment. And uh, yeah, for listeners, I'm sure they're they're quite interested to hear what you've got for us. Right. So I was thinking about this, and I think a lot of what I do is a bit subversive, <laughs> or I'm trying, as I said, to expose things that maybe people don't necessarily always want exposed. So I was thinking about a project, you know, this is an older project, but we went to Beijing for the Olympics and I worked with the Associated Press. And at the time of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, there was no data on air quality and the government wasn't reporting anything. So I teamed up with the Associated Press to make air quality sensors that would attach to their cell phones and they would, could walk around with them during the Olympics. Um, okay. Through that, we did tons of stories. We were the only people like, you know, one of the things that we found was like 26 times, like the air quality of particular matter was 26 times what you would see in New York or London at the same time. And so anyways, I got back from the Olympics and my Dean is like, the Chinese government is calling me. Like, what did you do in China, sir? Like, and he's like, I was like, I made it. 
you're probably coming back thinking, yeah, all right, I've done something pretty good here. This is pretty impressive, you know, like we can do something and yeah, to be met with that. He was like, all right. he was like they want to, us to bring it down. And I told them, no, <laughs> I'm like, thank you. But I think I made it right out of like, right. Because basically I left and then I think they, I, I think it was like, while I was in the air, they figured out who was doing all of this. And then- wow. I have like made it back to New York by like the thin of hair. I mean, I'm sure I, you know, taking a, a professor aside in China could have been bad, but right. they were taking many of the reporters that had the air quality sensors, they were taking them and putting them in cars and questioning them. And so like at the end of that project, we actually only had one reporter who was working with the air quality sensors because it was getting a little bit too dangerous. Um, wow. But yeah, anyways, it was, I mean, it, I was actually pretty uh, surprised by the Chinese government. They would just take in the associated pro report, like grab them and put them in a car, have a talking to, take their cameras. I, I mean, I thought these were stories from a long time ago. I didn't realize, you know, I mean, 2008 is a while back now, but still like at that point, you know, the China was open up pretty much. It just goes to show how much, how much they're still controlling the press that we don't really even know about. Yeah. Yeah. But I made it out. That is quite <laughs> yeah, good for you. Yeah. We're all better I for it. I still the air quality sensors in on my suitcase and they came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think I it's a top. I should be talking about this on a podcast actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you just nailed the promo right there. Right there is with that line. <laughs> I think I've got it. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> I don't think I should be talking about this on a podcast. Yeah. All righty. I don't know if I should be talking about this. It's 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 almost like it's 10 years ago. I think it's yeah, it's 2008. Yeah, we're, like good. we're good. Statue of limitations. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll have you know, you've moved, uh, you know, firmly up into that spot, that number one spot for the uh, Water Cooler Story segments Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I think you've got it nailed down with that one. That, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I escaped the Chinese taking me to prison. <laughs> <laughs> How I escaped the Chinese government taking me to prison. <laughs> all righty, all righty. Well, we do have one last segment here that I'd like to get into, and uh, it's called a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking towards the future here. Usually it's trends, predictions, so on and so forth. Now, with everything that you've done and you've accomplished, it, it would seem to me that technology has been a big part of it, you know, leveraging it, obviously, like your own skills and abilities um, and experiences and all those different things. But in thinking about technology, what what do you see moving forward, you know, some different possibilities, you know, for not only for yourself, but the world at large, when we're considering like the, the, the leveraging of architecture and design and big data and so on and so forth. I mean, I think one huge thing that's going to be transformative is when we do have autonomous vehicles on the roadway, it's not just the autonomous vehicles, it's that they're capturing and a complete image of the world as they're moving through the environment. And that is a whole digital world, like a three other three-dimensional space that I do think we'll begin to operate in. And it's going to be like the internet, I think, like in that, you know, you have advertising in this world. And it's not like, I'm not talking about like a third space or, it's going to be in our world, but it allows us to do all kinds of augmented advertisements and project yeah. onto screen. So like this, you know, typical way that we think of augmented or like reality, like it's going to really change dynamically by having these. And it already has, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that these kind of 3D worlds are used for is to help deaf people navigate the environment so they can, you know, put headphones on. And it's seeing, because if you think about it, right, like autonomous vehicles are the robots, you know, or the algorithms are seeing for the car, the same thing can happen for humans as they walk through. So I think there's a lot of applications that can come out of this for disabilities. I, just, I think there's going to be an explosion of technologies that are built on top of this 3D space. But I also do think like all of this big data, like I think, I do hope that we 
there's kind of a dis a potential dystopic future, I guess, which I want to make people aware of is, you know, Google advertising companies, they have more data than governments had. And this power imbalance between corporations and, and government and society is, is huge. And like I do a ton of work in Africa and you know Google has way more information about the population people and that power creates a kind of colonialism that I'm not sure that we're completely aware of. They become you know, they become a de facto government yeah. because they have more information and control. I, I think of like Safaricom in Nairobi, they have all the cell phones, they have all of the data, they can make all the decisions and they are making decisions that governments used to make. And so I think we really need to be considering that. I, I hate, be, I like to be positive, but like um, I wanna like really also think critically about, you know, how do we, change those parameters. It's not just about privacy. It's just about how to make sure we have a voice in our society and to equalize the power dynamic. Most definitely. I mean, like those types of things that you're speaking of, I mean, they affect people socially and that's changing lives essentially, right? Like governance and, and, and everything that encapsulates, you know, once you have companies that are in there that have a certain interest in mind, and usually it's that one track, it's like, yeah, obviously that profit, profit, profit. Yeah, that it's going to twist and shape things in different ways that aren't necessarily are going to be in the best interests of, of the people themselves. So yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we have to keep this in mind when we're you know, considering all that technology We're offers. We're going to have another Cambridge Analytica sandwich. I mean, we haven't really done yeah. anything. Cambridge Analytica happened. Yeah. It basically helped Trump get elected. And we still don't have any regulations around what to do. And we all wonder, like, how did Trump get elected? I'm like, he got elected through this data analytics process. And we we don't have anywhere. We still haven't made any any kind of headway into changing that. So that's something I'm very interested in is how do we inform government about the potential harms? But in this case, you know, one of the big problems is government benefits from lack of regulation, right? So they don't really make regulations around some of these things because they benefit, right? You know, if there's no regulation on cell phone data and then they can buy it and track us, then, you know, why would they do that? It's complicated real fast, doesn't it? It gets complicated. So I really think there needs to be more groups in the middle that are advocating for our rights. And that's just a traditional thing that we've done in society. We need to build it up more around this data. How can we make sure? And it's not just like my personal data, but it's my rights and how some of these really big data sets that are powerful can be used yeah. um, and how to kind of limit some of the problems that they can have. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, it, it seems as though like, again, we spoke about this earlier, but we have these companies, technology companies that are advancing at such a rate. And governments are just, they're not there. They're not going at the same pace. Yeah. You you need this other body, this other organization involved to kind of like, keep up with technology in, in essence, and be like, keep checking on them. Like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Is this the right thing? And then being that mediary, perhaps for government, like, hey, look what they're doing. This might not be in your best interest. Because otherwise, right? I mean, technology in these companies are just racing way far ahead and governments are just struggling to keep up and even just understand what's what's coming up right now, let alone 10, 15, 20 years down the line, which these companies, I'm sure, are mapping things out. Uh, yeah. We need data intermediaries. We do. We do. And there you go. You found it. I was, that was going to be what I did on my sabbatical. Uh, and then COVID hit. Maybe I need to get back in, in there now that COVID's over. It's so hard to lobby anything during COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you throw that on top of all of this as well. Quite the challenge indeed. All righty. Well, I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure, Sarah. I've really, yeah, really enjoyed this conversation. Too. It's been riveting. I mean, we've covered a lot. Everything that you're doing, presently doing, and probably going to be doing down the tracks. Uh, it, it's exciting. It's exciting. And it's also quite inspiring. And I think listeners are really going to enjoy uh, this conversation, including that story, which uh, thank you for that promo once again. <laughs> the story I shouldn't be talking about on the podcast. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. I got the second piece right there. 
Next time you can call the water cooler story something you shouldn't talk about on the podcast. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, I like that. I like that. All right. Now, for those interested in learning more about Sarah and her work, you can find and connect with her via LinkedIn or through the many organizations and companies she's part of, namely the Civic Data Design Lab, uh, Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism, Envelope City, and of course, you can check out her book, Data Action, through MIT Press. Also today, if you like today's episode, please be sure to share. I mean, it's never going to be a bad thing. We learn a little bit more about one another. It kind of reduces that divide and that tribalism. Um, so yeah, please share. Also to show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And hey, head on over to YouTube. We do have a channel there under Life As A, where you can check out full video conversations, much like we had today with Sarah. And the neat thing is that you also can see some visuals as well. We have a slideshow at the start of each episode there. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details, professions, and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.